publishing connection to Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. We may be battling COVID, laptop batteries, all kinds of things, but we're here to bring you some fresh Psycon. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're talking about droplet discoveries and chaotic cetaceans. In the second half, we have my conversation with Allison Michael and Kelly Salmon from the New Hampshire Academy of Science to talk about their work with some amazing high schoolers. But first, the news. For a while now, scientists have been fairly certain that life on Earth began in water. They just weren't sure how these tiny building blocks, amino acids, formed into slightly larger building blocks, or or proteins, or peptides, depending on how you read this article. The problem is that in large bodies of water, there's just not enough space for this reaction to take place without some kind of other catalyst. However, a team led by Graham Cooks at Purdue University may have found the secret behind the chemistry of life. Turns out, water isn't quite as wet when it's in the form of a droplet, which allows reaction rates between free amino acids to spike and was observed to be up to one million times more reactive. This discovery could potentially teach us more about the origins of life on this planet and help speed up reaction rates in the synthesis of new chemicals and maybe even new medicines. So what do we think about these dynamic droplets? This has the potential to be one of the biggest stories in science in a very long time. The search for the origin of life on this planet is one that has captivated scientists for hundreds of years. And there's always been the sticking point of how do proteins self-assemble without some other sort of catalyst. And it's never been clear whether it could happen because there just wasn't enough energy to be able to make these uh, reactions happen quickly enough. However, this discovery suggests that our understanding of sort of these interfaces between phases is lacking so much that we probably have no idea exactly how much can happen at that interface and how quickly it can happen. And this has the potential to really advance our understanding of how life evolved on this planet. It's just absolutely thrilling. It's it's just a really exciting discovery. It's pretty amazing. And the thing that really struck me is like, they're going to really going to have to change the intro video at Disney's The Living Seas, right? (laughs) For sure. Totally (laughs) different thing they're going to have to go through when they have the waves crashing on volcanic rocks and all this sea spray, uh, which is something they specifically talked about is sea spray and the primordial soup of a very old earth. The other thing I guess I didn't mention is they're thinking that a lot of these amino acids were peppered into the ocean by meteor meteor strike so they're like okay we kind of thought that was the idea we have this very 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 amino acid rich soup but then like yada 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 life on earth uh so now they they maybe maybe they know the yada 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 which is exciting right i mean the amino acids being present is one thing assembling themselves into proteins is another and that takes a significant amount of energy for that reaction to happen and it wasn't 
it was thought that it wasn't possible or we didn't understand what that mechanism would have been. But now that we understand that in these droplets, these reactions can be even faster than we expected, that has a huge implications for our understanding of how, how life started. It's just incredible how this fortuitous discovery is going to potentially change the way we understand um, evolution. Fantastic. So I'm an outsider, total outsider from this. How many times have they thought about different ways that this could happen and say, oh, we might have a breakthrough, but here's scientific evidence that kind of suggests this is actually the case? Because like that happens a lot, um, especially in science reporting. So context for me. Good. That's a great question. For this specific question, I'm not sure that there has been a discovery that you know they thought was going to change the way we thought about science until now. Um, I think that's what makes it exciting. We don't have a whole bunch of like examples of, oh, well, you know, this hypothesis didn't bear out with testing. Um, and so we have to sort of scrap it and move on. They just didn't know how it was possible. It was always theoretical. This is sort of how we think it happened, but we really have no mechanism for it. Well, now there's a mechanism. Um, and not only is it a mechanism, it's a really strong candidate for rapid change. And that right. is what's really exciting. And even thinking about like next steps, it can help with things now like the synthesis of novel chemicals, which I don't know about enough about chemistry to to know what that means other than they can synthesize things quicker in a droplet than they can in a vat of things. Uh, and they kind of thought like, oh, maybe this will help us create some medicines that were very difficult to synthesize a little bit faster too, which is is an important thing going forward. It's one of those cyanide classics where it's doing double duty. It's doing the basic and the applied science. So when you talk about rapid, how rapid? How much faster? Up to one million times more reactive wow. than in the bulk tank. That's, that's enormous. It is enormous. Wow. Right. This has been sort of one of those sticking points. The, to me, what's really exciting about this is that there's this tension between evolution and people who don't want to accept it and believe in, you know, a divine creation of the, of the world. Um, and whether or not you believe in that or, or not, that's not really what we're talking about. What we're talking about is this juxtaposition of two ideas here that neither one had evidence for at the time. One was hypothesized. You know, we think that uh, life began on this earth by assembling of proteins, self-assembly of proteins, uh, but we don't know how that would happen. And then on the other hand, um, well, that happened because, you know, some sort of divine intervention. Now we actually have a mechanism that can show how this could have happened. Kind of refutes one of the major sticking points of the anti-evolution argument, which is just fascinating to me. You know, there will be another question down the road at some point where we don't have the answer and that interface will happen again. But this one sort of moves that down the field a little bit further. And that's really exciting. This is like so big that I don't have words to like fully articulate this uh, other than it's it's pretty dang incredible those those purdue university scientists <laughs> that's what you chose that's what you chose no that's what i'm gonna have on my tombstone that's gonna be my quote right there pretty <laughs> dang incredible the james reed story i don't know i got i gotta i gotta let you in inside baseball here folks like I'm barely holding it together here. The Phillies are in the playoffs. The Eagles are doing well. This is, this is just a banner day. We know more about evolution. Like, everything's hitting on all cylinders today. I don't know. I'm, I'm just thrown by 
my fantasy GBBO league right now. We're just doing terrible. No one knows what's going on in the tent. <laughs> there, I'm throwing in my sports reference. Oh, wait, GBBO? Great British Bake Off. Oh, God. My fantasy ah. league. Is the okay. sponge a bit too close? Has it has it been coming up too close? Uh, cake after cake? What week are we I, in? You just have to watch this season. It was just like biscuit week was chaos. I Oh, man. Biscuit week is just, always chaos. That biscuit no, week this separates was just a whole the amateurs from level. the professionals every year. Biscuit week just threw our league. Then bread week, we were okay with. Now it's Mexican week. No one knows. They've never had it before. I don't think it's going to work. So Interesting. I'm sorry. That's the only sports I know. No, no. You don't have to apologize for that. There are other things you should apologize for, but not that. <laughs> not that one, Dr. Deem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to cut my reference out and leave yours in just out, of, uh, out in its own island. Yeah. I think it'll be funnier <laughs> that way. <laughs> I, I agree. From major discovery to major discovery, let's talk about these long-toothed cetaceans. I got to tell you, narwhals are pretty fantastic. I know Dr. Deem agrees with me. Their whales that live in Arctic water are two to three times the size of humans, and they have a canine tooth that forms up to a 10-foot tusk that protrudes from its face like a unicorn. And while they're not endangered at this point, they're fairly reliant on the presence of sea ice in their habitat, adding them to the very, 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 very long list of things that will be affected by climate change. And researchers have been trying to learn just how dependent they are to the ice, or really anything about their behavior for a very long time, but they just don't seem to act in any kind of regular pattern. They're kind of like teenagers in that way. They just kind of do what they do. Evgeny Podolsky from Hokkaido University teamed up with Mads Peter Hyde Jorgensen from the Greenland Institute of Natural Resources and channeled their inner Ian Malcolm to find out if this particular marine life can uh, find a way. They used chaos theory to find the pattern in what seemed like random behavior, teaching them more about narwhal life and giving me the opportunity to make an Ian Malcolm reference all in the same time. So what do we think about these chaotic citations? I thought it was fascinating because you can actually go on the article and see a video of their motion over three months time. Previously, people have just been looking at snapshots of activity and the fact that they could actually look at long activity and then apply chaos theory to it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. I'm just always mesmerized by narwhals. So <laughs> uh, I just love the intersection of you know science, math, and application of theory to understand how they're responding to seasonal change in their motions. I guess we got to address the elephant in the room, they found out that they are very reliant on sea ice, making them very able to be affected by the lack of sea ice in their life. So that's that's a bummer. Yeah. It is a bummer. I thought what was interesting was uh, they were able to track activity levels relative to time of day and determine that you know some of the different behaviors were related to, um, for example, hunting for octopus versus or squid versus other kinds of behaviors. And, uh, and they were able to tell these things just from the depths of the diving without actual visual observation. And I thought that was pretty cool. It tells us a lot about sort of the ability to track animals now compared to even 20 years ago when I was in grad school and we were trying to track 
animals in the rainforest, right? The technology has, has come a long way. So I have a narwhal story. I want to hear your narwhal story. Yeah. Oh, well, so my narwhal story is really about the tooth. For a long time, you know, this tusk, it was unclear exactly whether um, this tusk was analogous to teeth or whether it was an extra bone or extra amount of bone. Um, and so when I was in grad school, I was in Baltimore. I was, uh, I was at Johns Hopkins and the Smithsonian isn't too far away. Um, the Natural History Museum is in DC. And so about 30, 35 miles away. And Hopkins was always the go-to place for like random weird stuff from the Smithsonian for whatever reason. And so one day when I was in grad school, I was called down to the loading dock in the radiology department because the Smithsonian was on its way with a narwhal head because <laughs> they wanted to CT scan it. They wanted to see what the tusk looked like. And this was actually fascinating because the tusk is twisted like a Twizzler piece of candy, right? It's, it's just, mm-hmm. it's spiraled. And you can see that if you look at an x-ray, like we took a, a CT scan of it. So it's a three-dimensional x-ray. And uh, you could see the spiraling happening along this length of 10 feet. It was f- like phenomenal. And then you could see like the enamel shell, like the tooth filled with the pulp dentin, like everybody else's teeth are. So it was an actual tooth. It was just absolutely phenomenal. But we're wheeling this thing around and right, get to the loading dock at the Department of Radiology at Hopkins. And we're very quickly instructed that we cannot let anyone see this. So we've got this giant, because we're going through the patient area of the hospital <laughs> with a frozen narwhal head on this big <laughs> cart with a, with a sheet draped over it, right? And it's like, you can pretend that there is nothing under this sheet, except when there is a 10-foot tusk sticking out the end of it that you just can't keep covered. The eyes of the, right, the eyes of the patients we were walking by were as large as the tusk itself. And uh, it was it was quite entertaining um, to see that. Because, you know, I imagine if I was sitting there waiting to have like a broken arm x-rayed and I saw somebody wheeling this giant unicorn tusk through... My eyes would get big too. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're creating the uh, elixir of life with unicorn blood. That's, that's right. I'm proud to say that, that I had a foundational role in the discovery of the spiraled uh, morphology of the of the tooth of a narwhal because I helped wheel that thing through the hospital mm-hmm. corridors. Yeah, that I gets did you nothing the else. All. Yeah, I did nothing else with that study, but uh, but the grad student who uh, who published it right has me to thank for that. <laughs> Did you know they can have two? They can have two tusks. They can they can develop. Uh, Wait, they develop can have two. two. Un- yeah, both canines can potentially develop into tusks. Yeah, they're called walruses. Well, hold on, no, they they got the, <laughs> still got that unicorn look. Just they don't, they're, it's not Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit yeah. sad that their motion is so linked to ice mm-hmm. and and the implications with climate change. Are we going to lose narwhals? Uh, do do you want to know the answer? Everything cool probably. being lost to climate change. Probably, yes. You know what I do want to say? Actually, I want to shout out to uh, a former neighbor, Lucy. Lucy, who lived down the street from us, um, who recently moved to a different town in Indiana, but she is obsessed with narwhals. And I know that every once in a while, her mother listens to this uh, podcast. And so if, uh, Cheryl, if you're listening, there's a shout out because of narwhals to Lucy. There we go. Well, you know what? I think this is the perfect time to pitch to another podcast that I think you'll enjoy. And when we come back from this break, we'll have my conversation with Allison Michael and Kelly Salmon from the New Hampshire Academy of Science. 
Hi friends, Cameron here. I host a bi-weekly podcast called Nature is Gay that explores themes of sex and sexuality and gender expression across the natural world. We talk about pseudocopulation and sociosexual behaviors, asexual reproduction in plants and animals and fungi and every little thing in between. It's a great time. I'm a little biased, but I think you should check it out. That's Nature is Gay, available wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to the Science Night Podcast. Tonight, we have two very special guests for you to listen to. We are joined by Kelly Salmon and Allison Michael from the New Hampshire Academy of Science. Kelly and Allison, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. You know, dear listener, you don't know this, but I got dragged in front of a group of high school students a couple times, so I figured, you know, maybe maybe <laughs> they would feel uh, willing to come and talk to me, too. That's the story of how we got lumped up with the New Hampshire Academy of Sciences. I'm so happy to talk to you because I think what the two of you provide is that extra piece on top of high school education. And I think that's what I want to want to talk about today. So why don't we start by talking about what you do as part of the New Hampshire Academy of Sciences? Yeah, so with the New Hampshire Academy of Science, we mentor middle and high school students as they're conducting authentic scientific research. And this is through after school and summer programs. And also we work with teachers to bring this inquiry and problem-based learning into classrooms. And that teacher work looks a couple different ways. We supply equipment for them to bring, for example, PCR into the classroom. And then we also collaborate with Colby Sawyer College to, we help run a course there, or I guess one of our board members does where pre-service and in-service teachers are paired together to develop curriculum to bring to the classroom as part of the student teaching of the pre-service teacher. The one thing that I was like incredibly struck by, and you two watched me become struck by it as I walked into your facility, <laughs> is that you are very well appointed. <laughs> uh, that is for sure. You have a lot of gear, and I think back in my day when... <laughs> I was thinking about a science club or something that I had access to. We didn't have photospectrometers and millions of little pipettes that we could make fun pipette art with. And the amount of hands-on sciencing that these young people are getting is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, so we've been really fortunate in this area of the Upper Valley of New Hampshire and Vermont where... We are the board when it became when New Hampshire Academy of Science became a nonprofit back in 2016. They got together to raise money and get grants to outfit an old barn that is actually located on the campus <laughs> of Crossroads Academy in Lyme, New Hampshire, and got a lot of donations from Dartmouth and from the VA and from local companies to be able to outfit that space and really get it going. And then we were fortunate recently the the Crossroads Academy that we're co-located with decided to build a new middle school building. And we went in with them to make sure that the lab space would be really well appointed to make sure that the students can be doing really top level research and have 
more space for us to be able to bring in more students and more teachers to be able to learn these techniques. What are some of the disciplines that the students are, are being exposed to? Do they have kind of like the full breadth of science or are we kind of focusing on specific disciplines? Yes, and. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we cover pretty much the full breadth of science, but we definitely specialize in some areas just because we're a smaller staff and we can't be experts in everything all at the same time. Kelly mentors our life sciences programs. Do you want to talk about those, Kelly? Yeah, so those range from a lot of genetic work. So my background's in cell biology and we look at the genetic diversity of locally endangered lady slippers to see how diverse they are, to see how they might be surviving certain stresses that might be coming our way, to identifying bacteria using genetic methods. And then also we use the model organism C. elegans, which is a microscopic roundworm, and we can expose them to all sorts of things. We typically stick to what we encounter out in the world, such as microplastics, to see how that affects the worms and then try to infer from that how it might be affecting humans. And then we also are in chemistry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I'm a chemist by training. I mentor our chemistry projects and some of our computational and physical science projects as well. And some biology, I'm branching out. I tend to think of science in more of a quantitative way. Since I came on in 2020, I've been trying to add a a more quantitative lens to some of the qualitative assays that Kelly had already done. Um, So we've started building phylogenetic trees or family trees using all of the genetic data that Kelly's been gathering on the um, endangered orchids for a while. Also, we have a high-performance liquid chromatograph, which can analyze really mixed up liquid samples um, and separate them out into their component parts. This sort of instrumentation is stuff that students don't normally use until late in undergrad or in graduate school. We also do some protein modeling of coronaviruses, some machine learning. Um, We also do 3D printing and optical engineering. So I think that's all of our topics. Yeah, and um, all the engineering projects are also with the help of Dr. Marcus Testorf, who's um, with the Thayer School at Dartmouth. So we, we've kind of branched outside of our training and try to pull people in to help us run more different research platforms to meet the students' interests. And then on top of that, and it's probably, I, you know, I would say it's probably the highlight of the entire situation is you have a lot of guest speakers come in uh, that, that kind of, you know, I don't want to say inspire, but it probably is close to that. Uh, from a lot of different backgrounds. Some of them are me, uh, but a lot of them aren't. So why don't you talk about your your kind of Rolodex of guest speakers that you, you have to bring in as well? Yeah, so we reach out to whoever we can. Um, part of what we want <laughs> to do is that we want to be able to make sure to expose the students to the wide variety of careers that are out there in STEM in general, and not just that, the, yeah, you can go be a medical doctor, but yeah, you can be a researcher and that can mean a whole bunch of different things. Or you could be a podcaster or you could be a director of anatomy to try to get a sense of, give the students a sense of all the different options that are out there. We also try and intentionally have a diverse array of guest speakers so that all students have the opportunity of seeing someone that looks like them in a professional STEM career. 
I think both of those things are so important because it's easy for us to kind of fall into the the trap of thinking that everyone in science looks like me. And the other trap that we can even fall into in this podcast is thinking that everyone in STEM is a PhD level researcher at a research-focused institution with an NIH grant. And that's definitely not the case. So having students at the high school level see the full breadth of what science can be at a young age is really important. There's a lot of science out there, and what your PhDs aren't, aren't necessarily telling you is, I have that job that you think is really cool, and you can't have it until I retire. <laughs> there's, there's just not a lot of openings, so finding your own way is, is probably a little bit more important. Yeah, and it's, it's really important to the kids, I think, to see that what research looks like early on and to see if that's something that meshes with who they are as a person, but also just seeing that even us as PhD-level scientists don't know the answers to all the things. Like they're doing research projects because their answers, their questions we don't know the answer to yet. And so they try to ask us what the outcome is going to be and we don't know. And so that whole um, idea of figuring out alongside the student is, I think, a good thing for them to see that it's not like the labs that they typically might be doing in school where it's a cookbook and the teacher knows the answer at the end. Let's kind of talk about that. I think maybe the reason that you're able to do that is because you are not kind of bound by a curriculum and a standardized test and everything. This is more of an informal training. Still very, very formal in the sense that we are following the scientific method, but you don't have a grade to worry about at the end of that. How do you think that affects the student's approach to their work? I think it changes their relationship with us because we're not the typical teachers who are grading them and they they have to worry about that grade at the end of the term. And we've been asked by students like, oh, I'm, I don't get a good grade. Can I even do this? And it's like, yeah, they, it actually doesn't really correlate whether you have good hands in the lab and can actually do science and whether you maybe memorize and write well on a test. Yeah, I think we often find that some of our best students and the students that most enjoy what they do in the lab are the students that have trouble sitting still in class Mm -hmm. or have trouble performing on tests and exams. And a lot of that is we we focus on hands-on experiential work and kind of almost an apprenticeship model like graduate school. Um, So our middle schoolers come in and they learn not only from us, but also from the high schoolers that have been in the lab for a while. And we also don't try and teach them like all of science in one go. They learn a lot as they go along. It's almost on a need to know basis. So if you're <laughs> if you're doing a PCR project, you of course need to know all about DNA and replication. But if you're doing an HPLC project, you're much more in the chemistry world of doing dilutions and molecular structures. And it really drives the learning because they learn things as they're running into problems or as they're doing the next technique. So I think it's a more motivating way of learning because you're finding things out as you need to and as you want, hopefully want to as you're going through this project. It also sounds like you're giving them the opportunity to add a little bit of creativity to their work. We do give them some freedom so that we have like those research areas and there's sometimes some wiggle room in there. Like if you want to expose the C. elegans to something that 
you have in your home that's not totally crazy might burn the lab down, then let's see what happens. And as they go along doing their experiments, if they want to try something, as long as it doesn't seem unreasonable, like, sure, let's go and try it and see what happens. Yeah, we see that even with our our protein modeling research. Um, We had a student that was interested in how um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus interacted with uh, llama cells. And so I actually ended up emailing two veterinarians at Penn State and Oregon State to try and see if there existed a structure for the pro- the llama protein they were looking for. Wow. <laughs> or even a sequence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's not enough llama research being done. I was going to say, what, what was the what was your answer? What did you find out? I got to know now. <laughs> the answer was the llama structure doesn't exist, but the alpaca structure should be close mm. enough. God, you know, I feel like that's a cop out. Maybe they have, uh, maybe, maybe they're they're hiding the llama the llama genome behind the velvet curtain for a reason that they're not ready to tell you yet. Uh, <laughs> I, you know what? I think what we're saying right now is these cowards. Uh, tell us, tell us what you're hiding. Come on the Science Side podcast. Tell us all about your llama research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds like in this zone where they can kind of be creative in their science, there is the opportunity for failure too, uh, which you're not necessarily getting when you're kind of following the recipe in a high school science class. Tell me about how you approach failure. So first off, we try to design their experiments so that no matter what, they get data that means something, which is really hard and sometimes involves some forward work on our part. But also we just create a lab environment where failure is fine and is sometimes celebrated. Yeah, I think they really learn a lot about persistence and that, okay, it didn't work this time, so what can we change? Let's go back and do it again. And also that the data is the data and at sometimes it's not the result that you wanted or that you thought would happen, but that's still something to report. And that's a hard thing mm-hmm. for the kids to get because we do presentations at the end of sessions over the summer. Students made posters and presented them. And there's a sense that, well, all the data showed there was no difference. So I can't present anything. It's like, no, you're presenting that the treatment that you did led to no difference. I think that's something, too, that it is so important for students to get very comfortable with at a young age because we don't report that in like your nature and your science articles. And I think it's very good that you're allowing, you're, you're encouraging them to admit that the hypothesis that they started with didn't work out. And I'm going to tell you that I'm going to be very open and I'm going to show you how I got to that point. I think that is kind of protecting science in the future rather than having people that maybe are going to try and hide that data or kind of cherry pick it, which is even worse. Yes. We talk at the beginning about scientific ethics ranging from working with animals or human subjects, which we don't do in our lab, but also how to deal with your data and present it responsibly. 
you are connected with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So there is like a, a little bit of prestige with their with their presentation at the end of this. It's a little bit more than a school science fair. Talk about that relationship and what that means for the students. Yes. Yeah, so the New Hampshire Academy of Science was founded in its original form back in 1919 in association with the AAAS and when a lot of states were establishing their state academies. And over the past several years, we've sent students who do actually go through a version of peer review. So the Dr. Testorf, who I mentioned earlier, runs a peer review system using graduate students and postdocs and faculty at Dartmouth to look at students' papers. And basically, we say that they have made significant progress, even if the results are negative, they can write up a summary paper, it goes through that peer review. And if they pass peer review, then they can go present at the AAAS meeting. Um, So we've had students doing this for several years now. And it's looked a little bit different in the pandemic. And we're still figuring out exactly how that's going to look going forward. But in the before times, um, they would go and present posters at the AAAS and also go and get to see that sense of scientific community that happens at conferences and all these people walking around, interacting with each other and meeting and do some other fun activities in whatever city the conference is in that year. Such a a good opportunity for them to kind of get out and go to something like that where they're seeing so much work from their peers, but also mentors and and other people who are getting to see their work. So you said you had some students that kind of come back and take on more of a mentorship role. How do you see them progressing over that period of time? Is it more like they're there to teach them and guide them through their experimentation? Or are they just kind of there to be like, yeah, I didn't understand this when I was uh, starting out either, but uh, you'll, you'll get there. A little bit of both. It depends on the student. Some get really focused into whatever research they're doing and are just there to like say, this is a pipette, this is not... Others really enjoy sharing their knowledge. So we ask our students to reflect at the beginning of each program and at the end of each program, we give them a list of different things around the lab. The levels are whether they know what it is, whether they can use it with help, use it by themselves, or show someone else how to use it. So by the time we have a student coming back a couple times, we do get to the point where we expect them to be able to show someone else how to use it. And what's really cool is after students have gone through our programs and graduated from high school, we invite them back um, to become paid mentors over the summer. That's a great time where they tell the students, yes, I didn't know how to use it. Here's how to use it. And here's some ways to think about designing that experiment. A full circle situation and also instilling like the importance of mentorship in STEM too, which I think is a big concept to grab. The other thing I want to talk about, and I don't know, maybe maybe you can't really talk about this yet or what your plans are, but you got, you got a fairly sizable grant. I'm just interested. What What is the New Hampshire Academy of Science going to look like over the next five years? I should say first, we, we had an NIH grant from 2020. So we are like a weird, small college um, in terms of our... <laughs> institutional structure and how we're funded. We're in the middle of an NIH, um, NIGMS SEPA or Science Education Partnership Award that really helped us expand our programs and 
um, reach out to satellite locations. So we have a satellite lab up at the Fairbanks Museum and Planetarium in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. And we also work with teachers to have space and programs at Lebanon High School, a local high school, and um, another museum in New Hampshire, the Canterbury Shaker Village, and really expand out and run these types of programs in a wider area. Um, And that also helped with our teacher professional development program at Colby Sawyer College, and also just a support infrastructure that um, allows us to loan equipment, provide mentorship, and hopefully this coming spring in person, run a annual meeting to bring all these programs together. But what we were just awarded and we're newly excited about is a National Science Foundation iTest Award. It's Innovative Technology Experiences for Students and Teachers. It was just awarded this summer, and so we're starting to get recruiting and marketing for that. So we'll be recruiting current 8th and ninth graders from underrepresented and underserved communities across New Hampshire and Vermont, um, including Mm. rural areas to participate in our programming over the summer and during the school year and also have almost like a fully immersive um, college prep experience. So not only will they be doing research with us, but we've also um, reached out to some community partners to provide college prep through standardized test prep, but also just like how to plan for college, what classes to take. And Uh, We really are going to be reaching out to the community also to have scientist mentors who are professionals and can check in on them, but aren't us working with the students day to day. I feel like the the follow-up question has to be is, how how can students and scientists get involved with the New Hampshire Academy of Sciences? You can find us online and on all the social medias, our One of our many hats that we wear is social media manager. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I feel that. (laughs) Um, So our website is www.nhacadsci, so N-H-A-C-A-D-S-C-I dot org. We are working on an iTest page and an application for students to come in, but send us an email or uh, contact us through that Um, website and we will put you on whatever appropriate list to make sure that we contact you um, as we really get this program going. Um, And we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay. Now we talked about all that New Hampshire Academy of Science stuff. Now I feel like I got to talk to Kelly and Allison about how did we get to this point? You know, we talked about how there's this idea of what a scientist is and Maybe maybe it's not teaching informally at the New Hampshire Academy of Sciences. So what is that pathway like? We'll start with Kelly because I'm looking at her in the screen right now. So Kelly, what was your pathway like to this point? I have been interested in science for a long time. Around the end of high school, figured out that research was a thing that people even do and thought that that was a really cool opportunity. And when I went to college, I went to a primarily undergraduate institution where I could really get involved in doing research and have ownership over a project. That led me to looking at going to graduate school, which I did right after undergrad. In graduate school, I was doing research, working with human cell lines, and then also started getting more and more involved in teaching and in outreach opportunities to really bring scientific information out to people. And I started getting almost more into that than the research. And then when I was 
looking for opportunities and getting towards the end of my degree, I saw that the New Hampshire Academy of Science was looking for someone to teach in the summer. And so I did a three week stint with them. And then the following year, they were looking to hire a full time person. And that was lining up when I was finishing up. And it was a perfect mix of being able to still do science while also being really involved in teaching and outreach. It's that science communication bug. It gets you. Yeah, it does. Gets you, and then you just can't go away. Allison, what what's uh, what does your path look like? What is your story? I also grew up really interested in science. I had a compound microscope as a kid and looked at stuff under it all awesome. the time. Um, both my parents had science careers. Then in high school, I really fell in love with chemistry, uh, all the fires and explosions, um, and just sort of the magic of mixing two clear things together, and then they turn a color. I also went to a small primary undergraduate college and got some hands-on research experience, um, especially with an NSF-funded research experience for undergraduates, where I really found my niche within chemistry. I'm not a synthetic chemist. Um, and so I found materials chemistry, which is just the reason stuff acts the way it does, which to me is deeply fascinating. And I went to graduate school and all along on the side, I was involved in informal education in a couple different ways, but never with science. I actually knew a student through my church who was doing this cool research, and I thought that was really interesting, but was like, oh, you're a high schooler. It's, you know, probably not that impressive. And then I sat down and talked to her, and I was like, wow, that's actually like, that's real research that you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as I was wrapping up graduate school, I saw that the New Hampshire Academy of Science was hiring, realized it was where the student from church had been doing her research, put those together and applied. And it's been great ever since. So we talked about how having students in an informal setting allows them to inject creativity into their work. What is it like to be an instructor in an informal setting where you're not necessarily worried about hitting hitting benchmark percentiles and things like that? How has it affected you, the way that you've approached science? We do a very much winging it version of scientific teaching, which I think goes very well with not having to worry about the benchmarks, but we're definitely just figuring out alongside the students and they see when we're working on other projects and trying to figure out how to make that work. It's a great way of teaching and it's great working with middle and high school students. They're a lot of fun in the lab. This weekend after school, we were doing water quality testing. So we had kids frolicking in a stream. It's a, a really great way of teaching. I think in graduate school, everyone's like, you become the exact expert on one small little thing, and then you branch out from there. But I don't think I ever thought I would branch out to include everything from water quality testing to machine learning. <laughs> yeah, we definitely have a very wide scope. The one thing that I hear quite a bit, and I, I hear it from interviewees, I see it on Twitter, I see it's all over the place, is... is burnout in people engaging in STEM instruction specifically. Do you feel like that 
is a different experience for you at your position in the New Hampshire Academy of Science than you've experienced maybe in graduate school or, or uh, you know, when you were teaching as part of a bigger institution? Or is it still there but in a different way? I think it's might be a little bit there but in a different way and that is because we in addition to instructing programs and leading students through research and developing those research projects we're a small organization so we're doing a lot on the back end too so we always have a lot of balls in the air in terms of what do we have to do for grant reporting for this grant right now and what who do we have to meet with for this other thing so it's a different experience and actually the teaching is really the fun part of doing all that and that's what i think keeps us going through everything else what you gain is the ability to kind of be creative and flexible and and approach things in in a different way but since you don't have that behind the scenes staff that a an academy a, a an institution would would come with uh, you know you're kind of having to be the the everything I can relate to that as a podcast magnate <laughs> <Yes>. here <laughs> Yeah no definitely when we talk to NIH and NSF they're like oh and you bring this to the the finance department we're like so there's four of us in the whole <laughs> institution <laughs> sure. there full time. And it's like, oh, and then, yeah. then you bring this to grants and operations, like or grants the grants office. And we're like, we don't have one of those. Yeah. Mm. It's it's actually a lot of work to keep in <laughs> keep track of who we've told that they're like the head of the ethics office versus the head of the business office. Um, mm-hmm. in addition to being a principal investigator on the grant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I guess that is another question I, I just kind of thought of now. Is there a formal uh, relationship between your New Hampshire Academy of Sciences and the state of New Hampshire? Like, is there any kind of connection with the Department of Education or any anything that you have to kind of run these things through uh, since you have the state's name right there in your seal? So we have no official um, connection with the state. We're an independent nonprofit and in terms of our programs in general, we kind of run our own show. But I should mention we do have a program that is part of the New Hampshire Department of Education. It's called Learn Everywhere, where students who are in New Hampshire public schools can do one of our summer programs with us and do a little bit extra legwork on writing a proposal and making sure to hit marks along the way going through the uh, program and writing a good summary paper at the end where they can actually get a high school credit in either life sciences or physical sciences, depending on their research for the work that they're doing in our lab. So it's like informal plus at that point. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Which I think is just uh, uh, showing you how many different opportunities students have when, when engaging with your group at this point. It's almost like there are so many different facets to this that I don't even really know what to call it other than the New Hampshire Academy of Sciences, uh, which I love that because when I see that, I just think like, oh man, you can really, as a student, make this whatever you want it to be, which to me seems, seems great. Do you ever have students that that much freedom is actually a little bit of a hindrance, that they kind of need a little bit more of a a structure to thrive in? Yes. 
Um, <laughs> some students require a little bit more guidance when choosing a project or working through the scientific process than others. And that's, I think, one of the great things about our organization is students get so much individual attention that we're really able to, to tailor the experience to an individual student's um, gifts and needs. Um, so we have students coming to us that really want to do paleontology, but that we can't do paleontology, but we, <laughs> we find something close to it or that gives them the same skills that they would eventually use in a paleontology lab. Sure, sure. I can see that's what, you know, having the relationship with like the Fairbanks Museum and the Shaker Museum and places that are uh, engaging in different different aspects of the scientific enterprise is, is really key in providing that that not one size fits all uh, approach to the way that you're doing it. So I, yeah, I think I have a new appreciation for all of these, these satellites that you're throwing out there. Yeah, and it also just helps us reach more people because sure. we're kind of a weird lab in the woods and yeah. sometimes hard to get to. So to have more locations that can be closer to where it, there's a need is really helpful. Yeah, you're really uh, you're really embracing the the vox clementis and and desarto of of that, which is I, I'm not going to science communication science communicate the motto for Dartmouth College. You can look it up, yeah. listener, if you're interested. <laughs> Learn so, some Latin. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, this is a SciComm podcast, not a Latin com podcast. Uh, although maybe that's a niche we need to lean into. That's coming coming soon yeah. from River Power. <laughs> so um, I guess I want to finish on what would you want prospective students to kind of know about the things that you do if they're maybe on the fence about doing something like this, if they're a little bit worried about, am I going to be able to handle this? I would love for them to know that they can handle it. No matter where they are, no matter what their strengths are, we're really into whatever you're into. If you're excited about science, there is a place for you at our lab. Yeah, and also that it's a fun place. We're not looking to be competitive. We're not looking to get data by a certain deadline. It is how the science works sometimes that it takes longer, and we try to make it fun along the way. Yeah, I think sometimes. Students in middle school and high school, they see science fairs and they see science as a fundamentally competitive endeavor, mm -hmm. but we believe that science is fundamentally collaborative. That is the perfect thing to go out on, so I, I'm going to do it. Kelly Salmon and Allison Michael from the New Hampshire Academy of Sciences, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank, thank you so much for having us. You have come to the end of another episode of the Science Night Podcast, but don't worry, we've got plenty more things coming your way, including some scary stories to tell in the dark later this month. To keep up, you gotta follow us on social media. If you want to follow me, I'm at James underscore Read 3. Steffi, how can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or on Instagram at Starshipin. 
And Jason, before your battery just flies this mortal coral, where can everybody follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at OrganJM. Be sure to follow the podcast at SciNightPod and visit our website, SciNight.com, for all of our past episodes, links to the articles we talk about and the people that we talk to, and, of course, our merch. There's a lot to see, and you can see it all at SciNight.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, and until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. I play the DMV for my for COVID. Science. The okay. DMV? <laughs> yeah. Right there's the stinger, too. We got it all in a row.